we're going to look at uh, chapter 26, verse 57, all the way through chapter 27, verse 26. So um, we've got quite a bit of text this morning, but it's an important section. You know, we've been looking in the past couple of weeks at the final days before the cross. We've seen the close of Jesus' public ministry. We've seen his time alone then with the disciples, and we've looked at the Last Supper and his betrayal by Judas. We looked at the first Lord's Supper. We looked at the Garden of Gethsemane, the arrest of Jesus, and then the disciples finally forsaking him at the end of our text last time. And this morning we're going to continue and start to look at what are literally the final hours before the cross. We have Jesus in custody now. And chapter 26, which we're going to finish this morning, and then chapter 27, which we'll wade into, are the two longest chapters in the book of Matthew. And we have to imagine that perhaps the people that, you know, divided the scriptures way back when may have included so many different events in these chapters to give us something of the scope Right, and the, the rapid sequence of all of these very significant events, because what we see is that every incident, every detail in these chapters points us to the cross. And there's this sort of a rapid fire, kind of a like a trip hammer kind of a precision here that often gives people the impression that Jesus is somehow just kind of caught up in this vortex of circumstances that were out of control. And yet, if we look a little more thoroughly and if we consider it a little more carefully, what we find is that he is the master of everything that's happening here. And in fact, Jesus is never more kingly, if you will, as he is as he draws closer to the cross. And this morning we're going to look at all of the trials of Jesus. And what we're going to see is that Jesus was never actually the one who was on trial. But of course it was each of those who examined him and all of those who set themselves in a place over him, they were the ones who actually were on trial. So who's really on trial this morning. So let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless our time in the word. Father, we thank you for this time, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this incredible portion of scripture that we will look at this morning, Lord, with so much text, with so much going on, Lord. We are so dependent this morning upon your spirit to be the one to help us make application of these things to our lives personally, Lord. We pray that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here today, Lord. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church collectively, Lord, and to each one of us personally, Father. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So there were actually two different Trials. There was one religious trial and there was one civil trial that Jesus was subject to during those early morning and the, the daytime hours on the date of his crucifixion. And when you combine the accounts from all the different gospels, what you learn is that each of those two trials had three separate parts. Now, Matthew only includes some of those, and the first of which picks up immediately where we left off last time after his arrest in the garden. If you look at verse 57 of chapter 26, it says that those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest. 
where the scribes and the elders were assembled. So here we're in the darkness, right, of the pre-dawn, early morning hours, and they lead him away, and this charade of a trial is about to begin. Now, John tells us in chapter 18 that Jesus was first taken to the house of Annas. Annas was the former high priest. He's actually the father-in-law of Caiaphas. I got that right off of his Instagram, so you know that's a good-looking shot of him. But Annas was a very shrewd politician. He was kind of a like the godfather, if you will, of the whole temple establishment. They, they consider him sort of the power behind the throne. And it was during that delay, when they took Jesus first to Annas, that Caiaphas apparently had some time to kind of run around and assemble at least a portion of the other religious leaders, probably just a part of what they call the Sanhedrin. Now, ordinarily, an accused man would have been, should have been given the opportunity to prepare their defense. And what you see, though, is that these desperate religious leaders hurry Jesus away and in every way deny him a fair trial. In fact, what we'll see is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the elders, all of those who make up the Sanhedrin, they will break nearly every single rule under which they were supposed to be operating. Just very quickly, according to Jewish law, only a decision made in the official meeting place of the temple were to be considered valid. Criminal cases couldn't be even tried during the Passover season. According to Jewish law, all criminal trials had to begin and end during daylight hours. Right? All evidence and testimony had to be guaranteed by two witnesses. False witnesses, of course, were prohibited. According to Jewish trial, a trial always began by bringing forth evidence about the innocence of the accused before ever any evidence was brought about their guilt. According to Jewish law, only an acquittal, right, or a not guilty verdict, only an acquittal could be issued on the same day as the trial, a guilty verdict, they said, had to wait until one full night had passed in order to allow for feelings of mercy to arise within the jury. So these were the Sanhedrin's own rules, every one of which we're going to see them break in their desperation to get rid of Jesus. And as we look at this, it's of course important for us to remember Jesus was not dragged before Caiaphas unwillingly. Right? He was brought, as it says in Isaiah, as a lamb to the slaughter. He came in perfect submission to the will of the Father, and he came in fulfillment of all of those scriptures that we've seen. So the stage is now set. Right, We've got Jesus, the defendant. We've got the Sanhedrin as the jury. We've got good old Caiaphas, who happens to be serving both as the presiding judge as well, conveniently, as the prosecutor. And now we see poor Peter. Now he's a a spectator. Look at verse 58. It says that, but Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. So here's Peter, right, determined to prove wrong Jesus' prediction that he would deny the Lord three times and forsake him. Now, of course, it's been pointed out, you've all heard it said rightly, that you're always headed for trouble whenever you start following the Lord at a distance. And so here Peter follows at a distance 
right into the high priest's palace. And Luke tells us that Peter then was there with the servants warming himself by the fire of the enemy as the Sanhedrin assembled. And in verse 59, it says that now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. So right here we see Caiaphas and his cohorts, they had already determined that Jesus was guilty, but now they just needed to kind of go through the motions of some kind of a legal trial. Of course, their star witness, Judas, was nowhere to be found. So now they're out looking around for anyone who could possibly say anything that would make Jesus worthy of death. And of course, we notice, notice they couldn't even find any what? They couldn't even find any false witnesses that could agree with one another, let alone find any true ones. Now, just think about that in our days of Twitter and, and secret tapes that are coming, right? What a remarkable testimony to the life and the integrity of Jesus for having lived such a public life and having performed such a public ministry. It was difficult for them to even find false testimony against him. I'm quite sure that no one would have any difficulty finding plenty of true testimony to use against me and probably each of you too. And yet not against Jesus. And look what we read in the rest of verse 60. It says, but at last two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. So finally, they come up with two false witnesses that could at least agree on what we see is a pretty garbled account of something that Jesus said claiming that he had threatened to destroy the temple, kind of like a, a modern-day bomb threat, if you will. Now, we know Jesus had said something like this about three years earlier at the start of his ministry. In John chapter 2, remember, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, notice, not only had they misquoted his words, but they had also misconstrued their meaning. Remember, John specifically told us that Jesus was referring not to the great temple building, but he was referring to his own body. And so now this glorious prophecy of his resurrection was twisted into some kind of a terrorist threat. Verse 62, it says that the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. Of course, Jesus could have mounted a magnificent defense, right? He could have called forth all of the people, the witnesses to his deity and to his power and to his character. He could have called all the people that he taught and the people that he'd healed. He could have called the people that he'd raised from the dead, right? He could have called the blind who now were seeing. Even the demons, the Bible says, testify to his deity, but instead, just like it says in Isaiah 53, he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. One commentator says, his was the silence of patience, not of indifference, of courage, not of cowardice. 
I believe that Caiaphas saw this and it irritated, it, it infuriated him. And so in the rest of verse 63, watch Caiaphas now. He's acting more like a, an accuser than an impartial judge. Watch him press Jesus to make a statement. The rest of verse 63 says that the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So here when Caiaphas sees things going badly, right, he sees that these false charges aren't incriminating against Jesus, he takes another approach and he puts Jesus under oath. Now, again, in our day, where we just see repeated and routine perjury, right, very carelessness with the truth, we can't adequately appreciate the very solemn importance that the Jews gave to oaths. And in fact, the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 5, requires that a Jew would testify when they were put under oath by the high priest. And still, instead of defending himself, Jesus simply answers and he testifies to the truth. He was indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And then notice Jesus then adds this additional word of warning. He warns them, hey, though you guys are sitting in judgment of me now, he says, one day I'm going to sit in judgment of you. You see me here you know, my glory's veiled by my human body. I appear to be just a man. You're seeing me in my, in my humiliation, but the day is coming, he says, when you're going to see me as the glorified one. You're going to see me equal in all respects with God. You're going to see me sitting at his right hand, coming on the clouds of heaven. And in doing this, Jesus was graciously and mercifully warning Caiaphas and warning these men about the serious, eternal consequences of their sinful actions. This was their opportunity to recognize him for who he is and to repent. You know, often you'll hear people say, well, you know, Jesus never really claimed to be God, never called himself the Son of God. And yet here in verse 64, he swears under oath that he is nothing less. And we see that Caiaphas clearly didn't miss the point. Sadly, though, his heart wasn't softened, but instead, look what it says in verse 65. It says that the high priest tore his clothes, saying, he has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? So Jesus has made this clear, positive declaration of his Messiahship, of his deity as the eternal son of God. And to Caiaphas, it was blasphemy. And actually, that absolutely would have been correct, except that Jesus was the one who said it. Jesus is the only one who could have said that. It's not a crime for the, for the Christ, the son of God, to declare who he really is. But to Caiaphas, it sent him into a rage. 
And notice that he declares that the trial is over and the sentence is passed. It says that he tears his priestly robes. Now that was customary at the time when a man experienced great grief or great pain. But what's really interesting to consider here is that in Caiaphas tearing his robes, his actions were much more significant than he ever imagined. Because what's happening here is tremendously symbolic. Because unbeknownst to Caiaphas, as he tears his priestly garments with his own hands, he was in fact symbolizing the end, not only of his own priesthood, but of the entire old Levitical priesthood. Because from this point on, God is no longer going to recognize those priests of that Levitical economy because a new economy, right? a new priesthood based on the sacrifice and the blood of Jesus was about to come. In the rest of verse 66, Caiaphas had said, what do you think? And they answered, and they said, he is deserving of death. And then they spat in his face and beat him. And others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? So at this point, they thought they had him right where they wanted him, right? They thought that he had spoken words of blasphemy. Everyone had heard it. And so, contrary to Jewish law, contrary to Roman law, these guys take it on themselves to begin to brutally punish the accused. And their actions simply reveal the depths of man's depravity. Here God in total perfection had come to earth and lived among men, and this is man's reply to God. All that we're witnessing here is the natural antagonism of every human heart to the goodness and the righteousness and the holiness of God. Do you realize that if you and I only had our old natures still living inside us, that we would be right there with them trying to knock Jesus off the throne. Because our wicked, fallen human nature hates him. And what's really remarkable to me is that as these religious leaders vented their hatred and their fear and their anger, right? It says they were spitting in his face and they were beating him. What's amazing to me is that the immediate judgment of God didn't rain down from heaven. That God could watch this unfold from his throne and that a, a legion of angels didn't swoop down in defense of Jesus. And as we think about that, it is nothing less than an amazing reminder of the long-suffering and the patience and the restraint that God has towards our sin. And the staggering riches of his mercy, even right up until the end. Jesus had tried reaching out to Caiaphas and to these men, giving them every opportunity to repent and be saved, and they rejected him. And what's interesting historically is just two short years after Jesus was crucified, Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that Caiaphas was deposed from his office, after which he was unable to bear the disgrace and with the stings of his conscience haunting him from the murder of Christ, Caiaphas committed suicide in just A.D. 35. 
See, Jesus was never the one on trial before Caiaphas. It was always Caiaphas who was on trial before Jesus. And here, while we've watched Caiaphas on trial, we know that Peter also was out in the courtyard undergoing his own testing around the fire. And his darkest hour had arrived. Look at verse 69. It said that now Peter sat outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him saying, you also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he'd gone out to the gateway, so he leaves the courtyard just to get away from this little girl, it says another girl saw him and said to those who were there, this fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. They said, hey, we can tell by your accent that you're from Galilee. Well, that's where Jesus is from. In verse 74, it says, Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Now, this is heartbreaking because as he was here waiting for the outcome of the trial, Peter was given three different opportunities to redeem himself and to speak up on behalf of the Lord. And all three times he denied that he even knew Jesus or was in any way connected with him. And notice that Peter's sin of denying his association with Jesus, it gets worse and worse with each denial. Notice, first he simply lied. Then it says he took an oath to the lie he'd just told. Then he began to curse and swear to back up the lie. And that's not swearing in the sense of some kind of foul fisherman language, but it's, it's calling down curses on himself if he's telling a lie. And of course, in all of this, he did this not in the face of a Roman legion of soldiers or not before a hostile court, not even in front of an angry mob. But what happens here to Peter is what can so easily happen to every one of us is that Peter's own fear made these little servant girls into monsters. And it absolutely overwhelmed him. And Peter's failure is such a painful picture of the depths to which even a child of God can sink when we are operating in our flesh and when we're out of communion with the master. Peter was so sure that through you know, his self-will and his determination to do better, he was sure that he was going to succeed, but he was in such a desperate and such a disconnected and a backslidden state that even as he spoke, look what it says in the rest of verse 74, that immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus who had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so he went out and wept bitterly. Remember, it was forgetting the word that got Peter into sin. And now by remembering the word, we see that his cold heart started to warm up again. And all that he could do, it says, was to weep. And in Luke's account, Luke's the one that tells us that at this moment that Jesus was being led out of the house of Caiaphas, in Luke 22, it says that he turned and looked on Peter. Can you even imagine that look? So their eyes met, and it must have been a look that said, Peter, 
I told you this would happen. I told you that you would deny me three times. But Peter, I'm not through with you. Because Peter, I love you. So it was this look of Jesus and it was this gift of remembering the words of Jesus that brought Peter to tears. But these were grateful tears. Because these tears were the evidence that the work of a, a full restoration had started in his heart. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says that godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. This was the beginning of a true brokenness for Peter, a true contrition that would ultimately result, as we know, in the full restoration of Peter's soul and in his restoration back to ministry after Jesus' resurrection. Peter had some critical lessons to learn during this very difficult experience, right? To pay attention to the word, to watch and to pray, to put no confidence in his own strength. But now he had learned those things and now he was in a place where he was finally and fully broken and he could start to be used by the Lord. Now as we turn the page... And we start in chapter 27. Our story continues right on. We read that when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. Remember, they knew full well that it was illegal for the Jewish council, right, for them to meet in the dark of night. So now they convened to meet again after the sun had come up to make their kind of dastardly decision a legal one. They had already decided that Jesus had to die, so now they just had one small problem, and their problem now is that they didn't have the power to put their decision into action. Because at that time, the Jews, under Roman rule, they had been stripped of their authority to inflict capital punishment to even carry out their own Levitical law, which considered a blasphemer worthy of death. So now what we see in verse 2, they go off hurrying. It says, when they had, uh, and when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. So to get a death sentence, they had to take the case to Pilate, the governor, who was ruling for the Romans over that area of Judea and Samaria. Now, it's interesting here because though these guys hated everything Roman, their hatred for everything Roman was so incredibly intense, and yet they were willing to use this power to satisfy the greater hatred that they had for Jesus. We've said before, but it's always true that opposition to Jesus can unite even the bitterest enemies. Pilate was not liked at all by the Jews. History tells us he often did things deliberately to violate their laws and to provoke them. His position was very precarious with Rome because of the bad relationship he had with Israel and because Rome always was changing their policy with the Jews. But in this case, the Jewish leaders at least had a reason to expect a favorable result from him because secular history tells us that Pilate was a cruel and ruthless man. One ancient historian 
described Pilate this, talked about his corruption, his acts of insolence, his rapine, his habit of insulting people, his cruelty, his continual murders of people, untried and uncondemned, and his never-ending gratuitous and most grievous inhumanity. So surely, the religious leaders thought, Pilate is our guy to put Jesus to death. But first, even as they're leading Jesus away to Pilate, look what it says in verse 3. It says that then Judas his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So here Judas reveals what he'd known always to be true, and that's that Jesus was just, that he was completely innocent, that he wasn't worthy of death. Now, it may have been that Judas in this whole thing, maybe he expected that Jesus would miraculously deliver himself from his arrest. And now that he saw that the, the probable fate that was awaiting Jesus, now he was suddenly seized with fear and he's overwhelmed with the weight of his guilt. And so now in this crushing sense of anxiety, he's trying too late to undo this terrible thing that he'd done. And of course, for Judas, consider this, if he had ever seen any fault if he'd ever seen any inconsistency or hypocrisy, if he'd ever seen any sin in Jesus, certainly this would have been the time that he could have used that to justify his betrayal in his own mind, and yet he'd never seen that. And so this, I believe, is that this is the moment where Jesus or Judas realizes that Jesus is exactly who he declared himself to be, that he is the Lamb of God. He's the sinless one. And yet notice that instead of turning to the Lord to ask forgiveness, where does Judas go? Judas turns back to the religious leaders to try to undo what he'd done. And look in the rest of verse 4. It says, and they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Basically, they're saying, hey, this is not our problem, Judas. This sounds like your problem. You did the job, it's over with, we paid you, you got what you wanted, we got what we wanted, we don't need you anymore. At this point, they thought that they had their prey right in their power. They were completely unconcerned with the truth. Verse 5, it says, then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. So in his desperation, and in his despair, Judas committed suicide. Jesus himself, in John chapter 7, Jesus himself called Judas the son of perdition, right? Or literally the son of destruction or of loss or of ruin. And the idea there is that he's the one who's destined for. And so we have every reason to assume and to be assured that Judas went to eternal punishment. But understand, it wasn't because of his suicide, as some would wrongly try to teach. The reason that Judas went to eternal punishment is because he was never repentant. Look at verse 3, because that's the key. It says that Judas was what? He was remorseful. 
And the Greek word that's used there is very specific, very different than repentant, because it indicates not a sorrow for sin that produces a change of mind, but it's a sorrow of, for sin, a regret at being caught because of it. So it's this sense of remorse that drives someone to despair. Even though he knew exactly what he had done, notice he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But Judas was more sorry for the result of his sin than for the actual sin itself. There's a huge difference between being sorry about your sin and in being sorry for your sin personally. There's a huge difference because one of them leads to destruction and damnation. The other one leads to restoration and leads to salvation. And this is the difference between Peter and Judas. It's the difference between apostasy and backsliding. See, Judas was, a, was an apostate. He'd never known the reality of the new birth. He was chosen as an apostle, but Jesus said himself in John 6 that he was a devil. And there was never any point of recovery for him. Apostasy is abandoning a truth that you may have formerly believed. But backsliding is simply being in a, a state of decline from a great spiritual experience that you once enjoyed. And so the difference is immense. Peter slipped, but ultimately Peter wouldn't fall because his bitter weeping would drive him to repentance and restoration. But Judas completely rejected the truth. He believed a lie. Satan, it says, had taken possession of him. And Judas took his own life ultimately because Jesus told us in John 8 that Satan is nothing more than a murderer. And when we think about Judas, the story of Judas, of course, is heartbreaking because this is a sad and a terrible end to a life which really once promised so very much. But at this point, it was that darkness of Judas' heart that had now been kind of tried by the, the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus. And what we see is that this final desperate act of his, as he, it says he throws the betrayal money into the temple. Watch the way this caused the religious leaders some problems. It says, verse 6, But the chief priests took the silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, because they are the price of blood. Now, by throwing the money into the temple, and literally the word there is, it's the, he threw the money into the, the inner sanctuary, the place where only the priests were allowed to go. And in doing this, Judas was trying to implicate the priests in his crime. It was kind of his way of saying, you also are guilty of this. One author says that the act of a desperate man determined that they should get the money and perhaps hoping it might be a kind of atonement for his own sin. And yet the problem here is that the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 23, it wouldn't permit the use of this kind of tainted money for any sort of temple purposes. And so in their incredible hypocrisy, these religious leaders didn't want to defile themselves with this price that was paid for blood, even though they themselves were the ones 
who had paid it in order to have Judas turn Jesus over to them. There's no better example probably of what Jesus had said that they made the outside of the cup clean, but what? The inside was full of deceit and of treachery and of murder. And they consulted, verse 7, they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. What's incredible here is that even in their hypocrisy, these men were fulfilling prophecy. And fulfilling a very beautiful biblical picture. Because back in Bible times, a potter's field was the place where the potter would go and dig up his clay. And all of that clay soil in those areas made those fields unusable for anything else. You couldn't grow crops. It wouldn't sustain any kind of life. And so consequently, they often became the place where the outcast or the unclaimed, the nobodies of life, would be buried in these fields. But aren't those precisely the people that the Lord Jesus came to earth and was about to die on the cross to redeem? So there's absolutely no coincidence that the blood of Jesus purchased that field on that day. And how ironic it is that this apparent cover-up by the priests simply further revealed the beauty of what God was about to accomplish through Jesus. And if we're honest, can't we see ourselves in this picture? Here we're the ones now, the outcasts, right, who are at rest in the potter's field under the blood of Jesus Christ. So the fate of Judas, right, is now finished. Matthew turns the narrative back the next phase, if you will, of Jesus' unjust trial. It says in verse 11 that Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Now compared to the other gospel accounts, Matthew's record of the trial of Jesus before Pilate is pretty brief. Now keep in mind, that the Jews' grievances against Jesus were religious. And so they had just tried him on that basis. And yet religious charges wouldn't hold any weight in a Roman court. And so knowing that, Luke tells us that when they brought Jesus before Pilate, they pressed these three political charges against him, that he was a revolutionary, urging people not to pay their taxes, and that he was claiming to be a king, which of course would threaten the power and the position of the Roman emperor. And so this is the charge right, that perks up Pilate's ears and that he asks Jesus about. And so we see once again, notice Jesus doesn't give him any majestic defense. He doesn't perform some kind of an instant miracle to save his life, but he gives Pilate exactly the same reply that he gave to the high priests, which we see just brings on another onslaught of abuse and slander 
from the Jewish leaders. These guys start shouting another host of accusations at him. It says in verse 12, and while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not one word, so that the governor, it says, marveled greatly. Imagine this. Pilate spends all day, every day, hearing these kinds of cases. And he had probably never before seen anyone remain silent under this kind of attack when their life was hanging in the balance. Spurgeon says this. He says, he had seen in captured Jews the fierce courage of fanaticism, but there was no fanaticism in Christ. He'd also seen in many prisoners the meanness which will do or say anything to escape from death, but he saw nothing of that about our Lord. He saw in him unusual gentleness and humility combined with majestic dignity. He beheld submission blended with innocence. And I think Pilate also probably must have been given reason to pause by the conversation that he had with Jesus that John records for us. Because in John chapter 18, John tells us that in response to Pilate's question of Jesus, Jesus asks Pilate a question about the question that he had just asked. He basically says, hey, Pilate, are you thinking about a kingship in the Roman sense? Because if so, I'm not that kind of a king. And then remember, he goes on to explain to the governor that his kingdom wasn't of this world and that he had no armies, his followers didn't fight, but Jesus said that rather his kingdom was a kingdom based on a reign of truth. And it was this conversation that convinced Pilate that Jesus wasn't at all a dangerous revolutionary, but that he was someone, he was something altogether unique. And John records that it's at this point that Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Now Luke's account tells us at this point that the Jewish leaders were insistent that Pilate condemned Jesus and they start repeating their charges and they start kind of enlarging on them. And one of them mentions something about the fact that Jesus was from Galilee. And when Pilate heard that, he thought he saw a way out of this dilemma, since Galilee was actually under the control of Herod. So this is when he sends Jesus off to be judged by Herod. Remember, Herod was the one who murdered John the Baptist. He had threatened in Luke chapter 13 to kill Jesus. And we know that Jesus stood there silent before Herod. And all Herod could do was to mock Jesus and then send him where? Right back to Pilate. So if Pilate had hoped to push off the problem of Jesus so that he didn't need to make any definite decision about Jesus, then at this point he was deeply disappointed. But he has one more scheme that he hopes will solve the problem. It says in verse 15 that at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitudes one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? 
for he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, and he saw through the manipulative motives of these religious leaders, and he hoped that perhaps by appealing to the people that they would help to solve his problem. So he'd follow this tradition, right, of releasing a prisoner, and he goes and he chooses the most notorious, wicked prisoner that he has, Barabbas. Now, the other gospel accounts tell us that Barabbas was an insurrectionist and that he was a murderer. He was a despicable, brutal man that was hated by the people. And so as Pilate's kind of offering up Barabbas to them, he must have been certain that the crowd wouldn't want a man like him back on the streets. And surely the Jews would want to save Jesus instead. But then suddenly, look at verse 19, the proceedings are momentarily interrupted. It says that while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Now, this is interesting. None of the biblical texts offer us any details about Pilate's wife or her dream. And in fact, Matthew is the only one that even mentions her. But what we see is that she urges her husband to have kind of a hands-off policy with regard to Jesus, who she, she seems to sense is a, a just man. Now, I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that God was the one who had directed that dream in a way very similar to the way that he gave dreams to the Old Testament prophets. And he did it in order to add another voice, right? A, a divinely striking testimony to the sinlessness of the one that her husband was standing in judgment over and the one that Pilate knew was absolutely innocent. So God sends this message, another voice of testimony to Pilate. And yet, even as this slight delay is happening, look what it says in verse 20, that the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So as Pilate's up here receiving this message, the, the religious leaders are working the crowd, right? They're priming, they're persuading the crowd to their position so that when we read in verse 21 that the governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. So to his surprise, the crowds choose Barabbas over Jesus in spite of all of the ministry that Jesus had done for them. He'd healed their sick and he'd raised their dead and they rejected him and they chose a murderer to be released in his place. And the religious leaders knew that the, way, the best way to influence Pilate wasn't through his own conscience or judgment. It wasn't through his wife. It wasn't through the religious leaders as well. But they knew that the best way to push Pilate into a certain direction was by using the voice of the multitudes. See, here's a man who knows the right thing to do and who knows it through so many convincing ways, and yet he will ultimately do the wrong thing. And he'll ultimately do a terrible thing in obedience to the multitudes. Remember, the voice of the crowd is rarely the voice of God. 
Verse 22, Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said to him, Let him be crucified. And then the governor said, Why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. Now, if we take just a moment to understand a little bit more about the language here, it makes this whole picture even more painful but even more powerful because the Greek text shows that their cry, the cry of the crowd was actually just one word. It was crucify. And we can almost picture the scene. It's almost like a big football stadium or a, a hockey arena where the crowd starts shouting defense, defense, or whatever they shout at sporting events, right? But here they're shouting crucify. Crucify. And then notice when Pilate asks them why, instead of even answering, they simply shout louder, Crucify, crucify. And this whole scene is remarkable in and of itself to have these words coming from the lips of a Jewish crowd because the act of Roman crucifixion was absolutely abhorrent to the Jews. So there was a mob hysteria that had taken over here and Pilate had a choice to make right then and there to answer his own question, what shall I do with Jesus? And make no mistake, that is the key question for every person who has ever lived down throughout history. What shall I do with Jesus? So Pilate had a choice. He could either stand up for what he knew was right or he could follow the crowd and save his political skin. And today there are those who truly know in the bottom of their hearts that Jesus Christ is the only way and yet the crowd around them is saying what? Well, no, don't be so restrictive. Don't be so narrow. Surely there's many paths. And I think as we read this, if we listen carefully, we can hear the torment in the voice of Pilate. He had examined Jesus. He had already said, I find no fault with him. But what we see in Pilate is that every decision and every evasion that Pilate made just forced him to make another decision. Until finally, at this point, now he's just the prisoner of all of his own Evasions. It says in verse 24 that when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. He says, you see to it. So Pilate acts out of expediency and not at all out of Integrity. So he washes his hands. It's kind of like him saying, well, look, this is out of my control. Personally, I wish this Jesus no harm, but, you know, things happen. And yet, the power and the responsibility, ultimately, of what to do with Jesus Christ rested with Pilate personally. 
And to simply say, I find no fault, that wasn't enough. To, to look for a clever solution of releasing another prisoner, that was no solution. Washing his hands of the responsibility was meaningless. He couldn't escape his personal responsibility of what he, Pontius Pilate, was going to do with Jesus. And now he is forever connected with the crime of sending Jesus to the cross. Right? Echoed throughout history in the scriptures and in the Christian creeds that say that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. And when we read all of the gospel accounts together, we can truly, I think, appreciate, maybe we can even sympathize with the restlessness and the torment and the indecision of Pilate. Because what you see is that time after time he goes out to the crowd and then he comes back in to question Jesus. And all the while he's desperately seeking some way to avoid making a decision, but his example illustrates for us that no individual can avoid making their own decision about the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is. No one. And in this fruitless attempt to exonerate himself, he'd washed his hands and he says he left it to the people. He declared that he was innocent of any guilt. And it says in verse 25, and all the people answered and said, he said, his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barnabas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So the crowd here is far too frenzied to worry about guilt. They were willing to bear the blame and they got their way and the blood of Jesus is upon them. And we have watched the Jews We've watched this beautiful, blessed people feel the effects of this statement for centuries since. And that curse is going to remain on them until they finally acknowledge Jesus as their rejected king and Messiah. These people had absolutely no understanding of what they were asking for. They certainly didn't understand the glory of the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus. They didn't understand how wonderful it would have been to have that blood of cleansing and of redemption have that be upon them and their children. But here the people and Pilate and Judas and Caiaphas and every single individual who has ever lived each had one of two choices to make. One is to acknowledge that Jesus spoke the truth and they could fall down and they could worship him as their Messiah and the other was to reject him as a blasphemer and to choose Barabbas. And the spirit of Barabbas has dominated the world ever since. And right now that, that murderer is still enthroned and the righteous king has been rejected. And again, it's a reflection of the fallen nature of all humanity. And people today are still rejecting Jesus and choosing another and yet Barabbas today looks different Barabbas today could simply be their lusts Barabbas today could simply be their addictions or just self or those comforts of life and one author noted that this mad choice is every day made while men prefer the lusts of their flesh before the lives of their souls 
And as we close this morning, we're going to partake together in communion. But before we do that, I want us to spend just a moment and actually consider Barabbas. Because if anyone knew what it meant that Jesus Christ died in his place, it was Barabbas. And Barabbas is a picture of every one of us in this room this morning. He was a terrorist. He was a murderer. He was a, insert your own sin here. Yet he was free while Jesus was crucified. And understand that the cross that Jesus hung on that day was probably originally intended for who? It was intended for Barabbas. And we kind of can imagine Barabbas in some kind of a dark prison cell. Maybe there was a small window and he's waiting there knowing he was going to be crucified later that day. And through the window, he could probably hear this crowd that was gathered before Pilate because it wasn't very far away from the fortress Antonia where he would have been imprisoned. Now, it's very likely that he couldn't hear that single voice of Pilate when he asked, which of the two do you want me to release to you? But he surely could hear when the entire crowd shouted back, Barabbas. He probably couldn't hear Pilate's one voice ask, what then shall I do to Jesus Christ? But he certainly could hear the crowd roar, crucify, crucify. So understand that if the only thing that Barabbas could hear from his cell was his name, and then the crowd shouting, crucify, crucify. Understand that when those soldiers came to his cell, surely he knew that it was his time to die a tortured death. But then imagine. Imagine when the soldier said to him, Barabbas, you are a guilty man, but you're about to be released because Jesus is going to die in your place. So Barabbas truly knew the meaning of the cross better than anybody else. And we can only wonder whether he ever actually took that to heart. Second Corinthians 5, it says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's something to celebrate. Amen? For all of us Barabbases in the room, we can celebrate that this morning. Amen? Father, we thank you, Lord, for today, Lord, and we thank you for this text, Lord, as challenging, as difficult as it may be have been, Lord, we, we just pray that your spirit would help to minister the truths, Lord, to our hearts, Lord, to help us to see our place in all of this, Lord, to help us, um, Lord, give us open hearts, Lord, that we would see, um, that we would see not just our own depravity, Lord, but we, we, we would see your mercy, Lord, and we would see your grace, we would see your great love, for us, Lord, and we pray that we would celebrate and that we would remember that even now, Lord, as we come to the table and we take communion, Lord, we pray that this is something as we prayed 
even just weeks ago when we did it, Lord, it's something that would never become common, Lord, but that you would minister the, um, these truths to our hearts, Lord. And we thank you and we praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.